Can you can you tell me anything else about it other than the fact that it's like you've just never seen that in a yeah. popular TV show before? It does whatever, seem like that you know? that ending was designed for people to go like, "Wow, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen!" Like, how I never would have thought that. And yeah, I watch that and I go like, "Oh, sure, yeah, that's the you're you're doing something like this." Oh, it's just another fucking just another Tuesday in my apartment. Right. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ, I yeah. watch guys fly away all the time. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> To me, I was talking to Brad. I was talking to Brad. I watch I guys to- get sucked right up. Oh, dude, every day. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to Brad about it, and I was just like, "Well, Brad, that's that's not even going to be because Brad's like no spoilers." And I'm like, "Brad, for you, that won't even be the craziest thing about the episode for you, you know." I'm like, "The fact that it's now Sopranos adjacent is going to be yeah. the craziest that's thing right. for you." That's right. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown him? They crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the hot. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey everybody. Welcome, welcome back to another episode of the Gauntlet. We have a sorry, we have a we have a shoveling situation. There's, there's somebody like shoveling like right outside. It's really loud. It's just scraping. I mean, you can probably yeah, start scooping but, up the uh, Gauntlet refuse. Yeah. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, one of the hosts of this show. Uh, today, I got with me Eric Marsh and. Andrew Stasiulis. So this show is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a theme for the week and the other two program a double feature in reaction to that theme. And I had the good fortune of selecting the theme for this week. And I actually picked it a while ago because it was in partial response to a double feature we had done previously, which uh, entailed us watching the Bertolucci film Little Buddha. And there was a very funny anecdote that Marsh shared in the recording of that episode that Bertolucci claims to have uh, auditioned hundreds of Indian men for the role of Buddha. And when he found out that Keanu Reeves uh, had some Asian ancestry, he thought, oh, great. That checks off a few boxes for me. I can get away with this. <laughs> and his reason being that the, the that all the Indian men who auditioned were trying to emulate Schwarzenegger, and none of them gave off the peace that he found with Keanu Reeves. It was very it was very amusing. But I remember watching the film. I was I, I I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed Keanu in it. But I remembered thinking like this is a bit of a bummer. And so it got me a little restless, and it got me thinking about all the you know just about a billion people who lived at the time that like could have played that role and got me thinking about parallel cinema and it's it's something i love so i thought you know we've we've danced with it a few times on the podcast some one of our earliest episodes featured um a phenomenal parallel cinema film uh, our land and so i thought let's let's focus in on that and i guess for those who don't know parallel cinema is is a moniker that's given to a type of Indian cinema that's outside of the Bollywood system. And it's a very loose definition. It became quite popularized when Satyajit Ray was making films. Um, I, did, I can't remember, actually, just off the top of my head if he even coined it. 
But he's sort of like the canonical parallel cinema figure, right? But it really broadly is very encompassing. I mean, parallel cinema can have musical numbers. It can have set pieces. It can emulate Bollywood cinema to a great extent. It's just, it's sort of like a blanket term that's provided for films outside of that system. And that's that's certainly what what we got this week. We we, we There's not a lot of singing and dancing uh, in the films we have, they, they don't have the populist appeal of, of a Bollywood production and all the better for it because I, I really enjoyed both of them. One of which I had seen and, and have, and love. And the other one was, was new to me. And it's a really perplexing film, I guess. They're both a bit baffling in beautiful ways. So I'm excited to hear both of your interpretation of like what these films even sort of are. So we'll start with the earlier of the two, and that is the film you selected, Marsh. Yes, thank you. Um, I had actually seen some mutuals online talking about this film rather recently as something that was interesting, and it was like just around the time you pitched the topic, and I was like, oh, I just like wrote down a, you know, a parallel cinema film to watch like I'll just pick that right and so I didn't really put uh too much thought into it uh but wow yeah I had a I had a very fun fun time uh that I'm sure we'll get into so the movie that I selected is Duvida from 1973 written and directed by Manny Call uh this film is wow uh, where to begin this is a very weird movie um to use a sort of i guess like superficial comparison to give the the listener an idea of how this film feels uh maybe somewhere in the realm of sergey Parajanov or uh just you know the tarkovsky meme poetic cinema you know that kind of world that we're entering into here and i was reading up a little more about Manny Call, because I'm really not familiar with his work uh, until very recently. I watched uh, one of his other films in preparation for this just to get an idea of his vibe. The Clay but, Pot one or a different one? No, a different one whose name, uh, of course, uh, I'm going to like botch. It's called like The Day Before the Rainy Season or something like that. Loose translation. Yeah, beautiful title. Um, oh, my God. And it's a very beautiful film. Um, but he sort of came about as one of these post-Satyajit Ray figures that sought funding through the government, through the newly established uh, Film Finance Corporation, which was established in the late 50s, um, and then also the Film Institute that had been founded as well in that period. So they had never had a film school, and Manny Call was an, an early sort of film school attendee where he studied under Ritwik Gatak, the other, you know, another very famous parallel yeah. cinema figure. Uh, and Call went on to then develop his own poetic style, sort of a blend of a little bit of European art house cinema. He was like a professed lover of Brisson uh, and other sort of, you know, guys from that era like that, um, as well as Gatak. And this movie, Davida, tells a folktale, and it's based on... Um, like a, a regional folktale from Rajasthan where the film takes place and was shot roughly uh, in the deserts around there. And so it's like the story of these newlyweds. It's kind of like a honeymooners classic yeah. <laughs> uh, where we have these, these newlyweds, you know, this merchant 
this merchant's son, rather, and, and his bride, and they're traveling home, um, you know, in the opening sequence, and they go by this great big banyan tree where there is a ghost residing, and the ghost catches a glimpse of the bride and is like, wow. I want that. Yeah, I'm into that, you know? And um, as they're journeying home, the bride receives uh, terrible news about her terrible marriage. Uh, Her new husband is going to go away on business for five years immediately, and they're not even going to fuck. And that's exactly what happens, leaving her alone in this strange land with these strange people, her uh, ineffectual uh, businessman (laughs) businessman father-in-law. Um, and this very just kind of like sandblasted sort of space. Um, the ghost then, you know, sees the merchant's son uh, going away for five years to do business and uh, decides to uh, basically create a double of this man and then go home and say like, ah, I just turned back. Uh, I'm just going to hang out now. <laughs> And that he does, and convinces everyone very quickly. Except the amazing sort of twist, and this is where I'll, like, leave off, you know, the story, what what story there is, is that the ghost is not deceitful to the woman. He reveals that he's a ghost. He reveals himself immediately and says, I would feel bad if I was, like, you know, actually, it's like, I'm your husband. I am not your husband. I'm a ghost, you know? They proceed to have an affair while, while her real husband is away on business. And uh, there you go. That's the movie. That's the folktale. And uh, and some other stuff that happens that we'll get into. But uh, it's filmed in color, uh, which was rare for the period. And I did learn that uh, he had no money uh, to make this film. After his first two weren't really successes, you know? And, like, some of the parallel cinema films were financial successes, like uh, Bouvan Chaumet from 1968. That was, like, a huge uh, box office hit that helped spur a lot of this production when they were like, oh, we can make non-Bollywood films that make money. There was a little influx going on in that period, and Call's first couple films didn't really make money. They're very poetic and very weird, and they are very slow, um, beautiful films but it's like, they're strange. And this film is even stranger. It is full of freeze frames and asynchronous sound and just all kinds of, like, tricks. He's constantly breaking uh, the space-time continuum, and I'm excited to talk about it uh, with you. So, uh, yeah, that's Duvida from 1973. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I guess speaking of doubles, right, as you talked about with Duvida, Andy, (laughs) we've, we've got a... A pair of one man in of sorts with, with a pair your, of one man. A pair of one man. <laughs> that, that's what I would call this movie. That's that should be the English translation. A pair of one man. Yeah, tell us about tell us about what you found. So I know uh, very very little. My exposure to the parallel cinema is uh, minuscule. I think that's the only way that I can really um, safely describe it. Um, but, you know, it's always something that uh, has been in the back of my mind to explore more. So I was certainly 
uh, pleased with your choice of topic because it gave me an opportunity to dive into a, a, a national cinema that has uh, intrigued me for a very long time. So I didn't really know where to begin. I didn't really know where to to, to look. So I just started kind of uh, trying to find uh, people who are much more comfortable and familiar with parallel cinema and looking at some of their lists and picks of, of, you know, must see films, uh, essential parallel cinema films, not directed by Satyajit Ray, of course, you know? So I knew that, uh, I wanted to dig, dig certainly deeper than that. I'm obviously very familiar with, with his work. Um, and so I, I didn't really, I just kind of was waiting for something to, to jump out. And I came across the film that I ultimately selected, uh, also partly because of its poster. It has a very striking poster that caught my eye. It, it looked, uh, nightmarish is the best way that I can sort of describe it. And once I then, uh, read a little bit more about the film, saw how many people, uh, praised it and, and said, you know, this is, uh, like a classic of, of, um, more, you know, of parallel cinema. It, it's certainly like made the choice a lot, a lot easier for me. And I'm glad that I did because it, it, uh, it covers a lot of things that I'm interested in, in cinema more broadly, or I guess approaches to storytelling that I find always very fun and, and exciting. So the film that I picked is called Anantaram from 1987, and its English title, which I've seen more people actually utilize online, is Monologue. I don't know if that's a direct translation, but uh, I'm going to probably just refer to it as monologue throughout the film because the movie is, on a certain level, uh, one character's monologue of the story of his life. The film concerns, concerns a man named Ajayan, who is telling us all about his experience, his experiences in the world from birth to uh, his sort of like young manhood. And we get more or less a, a sort of naturalistic story of one man's upbringing. However, halfway through the film, something very startling happens. He basically stops and says, that's not everything, let me start over. And he then tells us the story of his life again. Twice told. Twice told, <laughs> but this time around, it's very, very different. And only at the end do we really get to see what's actually going on here. Um, you know, there's a lot of like details in there that I'll save for our, for our conversation. Um, it's a, uh, a confounding film, I think a very... Um, very well-made film, a very thoughtful film, a very interesting film that sort of like plays in a lot of other sort of like established genres. You know, we, we get drama, we get comedy, we get sort of almost like neorealism, we get horror at times. I mean, this is a, a fascinating psychological uh, deep dive into one man's troubled mind. Um, it also, part of the reason why I was intrigued was because I saw somebody 
uh, actually kind of compare it to Robe Grier on a certain level. That it had sort of reminded them of uh. of a Robe Grier sort of approach to storytelling, especially in you know this idea of of rooting a film so deeply into one person's perspective that we can't fully believe anything we're actually hearing or seeing. And that's certainly the case, I think, with this film, especially once you 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 see the the, the twice told tale <laughs> go to its its uh, its conclusion. So um, yeah, the film is directed by uh, Adur Gopala Gopala Krishnan. I'm sorry, my pronunciation is probably horrible there, but uh, I did did a little bit more research into him and and saw that he was a very uh, well-respected figure of the parallel cinema. Um, if you can go by Letterboxd on some of these things, I was just like looking at a lot of his other films and. I don't think I saw a single one that was like less than than four stars, more or less. I mean, lots of people seem to really highly rate his work, and he's won in India and in some international festivals uh, a lot of awards over the years for his his work, um, stretching from the '70s all the way into I think like the mid. 2000s he was active even though he only made i think like 16 films something like that but but over a a long period of his career and this one seems to be situated right in the middle so uh yeah i had a a lot of fun with it um and uh, it's gonna certainly do what i was hoping this week would do which is to to give me a nice like springboard to to dive more deeply into parallel cinema so that is anantaram a.k.a. Monologue. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, it was pretty neat because I had seen Duvita before and I remembered really liking it. And I remembered when I watched it and really liked it, there was part of me that's like, yeah, this is probably just the greatest movie ever made. And it's like not fully unlocked on this first viewing for me. And it was nice because this viewing, I was like, oh, yeah, this is just perfect. This is just, just an amazing movie. I really loved Evita and I really liked Anant Duran. But I was, you know, it, that shock of the new, that first encounter with it, it is really baffling. And I like the way you described it, Andy, where it does have this strange mixture of genres. Things don't really become clear until the end. How clear do they even become? And I think as an interesting sort of springboard to talk about what these films have in common, I think it's interesting how they both, in a way, tie into the theme in a a really nice way, in like a poetic way, because both of these films are about parallel lives. And I think that, you know, thinking about it as parallel cinema, there's, there's an interesting way I think we can apply the sort of philosophy of how parallel cinema was was kind of treated with the way that the lives are treated in these films. Because I do think the thing I like about parallel cinema is that it's really malleable and it's not something that feels totally separate from a film industry that already exists. Because as you mentioned, the director of Anantaram did make a lot of movies. And, you know, it was it, it was obviously much harder for people to make things outside of a Bollywood system. But I've always been impressed when I have done some research on a lot of these people that they have pretty robust filmographies. They made a lot of stuff. So it wasn't totally separate, right? These weren't these weren't roads that go off in totally different directions. They are parallel. These are cinemas that sometimes, you know, even parallel cinema sometimes has song and dance. It, it takes things from the the prevalent film industry. And I think with both of these films being about parallel lives 
these lives aren't totally divergent and separate. There's so much that they share that you can like overlap on top of each other. They're interesting roads that do are in sync with each other. So yeah, that was something I was thinking about because, you know, it's, it's much more, the, the waters of the lives are much more muddied in an antaram because you have to wonder about an unreliable narrator, what you take at face value, how much you can trust. And in Duvida, there's a, a plot device that makes it clear that these lives are separate, but then it becomes how everyone perceives these two lies and lives and how they find their own truth. So yeah, it's a kind of a, a extremely broad way of introducing it, but that is, that's what attracted me to these two films together, is their treatment of parallel lives. There's a radical subjectivity at the core of both of the films that like motivates the form, because even DeVita, you know, who's narrating? She's narrating, the husband's narrating, the ghost is narrating. I mean, it's always multiplied. It's never like anyone's particular vision, but nevertheless, um, yeah, it's it's not exactly like uh, in... Uh, What's it called? Monologue. Monologue. Uh, well, you know, where it's like one guy's intense, like fragmented memory, but like it's pretty close in that sense of just like it's all, like you said, perception, right? And it's POV and subjectivity. And I think that, you know, on a on a sort of surface level, I'm I'm no expert on the movement or new Indian cinema, but like a lot of new wave movements, it's like, what do they provide or what are they trying to provide? It's like mm -hmm. shit you can't get from those other movies, like deep dives into someone's psyche. I mean, that's like the European art cinema of the era was doing the same thing. Like we got to probe the mind. Uh, and in doing so, you know, these both of these filmmakers are going in, in crazy directions that even DeVita flirts I think with genre they 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 really did have a lot in common yeah. especially yeah subjectivity and like imagination good or bad that, that <laughs> thing know? you mentioned about the narration was something I was really trying to piece together because there were so many moments where you're hearing these voices and you're let's say you're hearing the the merchant right describing some of his thoughts presumably you think it's him because he's actively thinking but then i was noticing in the translation and the subtitles there'd be quotation marks and within those monologues that these characters were maybe having having it would say he said or she said and i thought i thought that was you saying that sir <laughs> and i wouldn't realize <laughs> it was like someone outside of that so that was that was interest an interesting game to play about like okay how much of a subjective experience is this? How much of this is an outsider perceiving these different lives? While the difference being with monologue, of course, is it's a fractured individual that is sharing a direct monologue with us. Yeah, in that sense, like DeVita was also, um, and maybe it's so fresh in my mind because we just watched it, it was sort of like um, giving me some like major like Malik vibes in that approach of the kind of like cacophony of different voices all sort of competing for like spiritual presence in this in you know in these images like whose images are these are like who do they belong to and i think Randy that call. right yeah and i think that that <clears throat> i think that ambiguity is certainly what i i uh found like most uh intriguing throughout the film you know because 
it is, it's, it's, I think, much more in, upfront in DeVita, you know, because very quickly we are getting sort of like multiple voices kind of uh, competing and almost like contradicting one another in terms of like the interpretation of events and, and, and what these things mean. उसके बाद भूत ने जो सही बात थी विस्तारपूर्वक बता दी कि उस बरगद के नीचे उघड़ा हुआ रूप देखकर वह कैसे मूर्छित हुआ कब होश आया दिशावर जाते हुए पति से क्या बातचीत की उसका रूप धरकर कैसे हवेली आने का साहस जुटाया महात्मा का वरदान किस प्रकार रचाया आंधी तूफान की बात भी उसने पूरी तरह बताई but monologue, it's, it, it takes a while. I mean, it takes half the movie before you are like, oh, wait. Yeah. It's vertigo. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah it's vertigo. Because you are taking it for face value. And in that sense, like monologue to me was like you putting in in terms of like new wave movements. Monologue is, I would say, departs a little bit in the, from DeVita in the sense that it seemed more an active kind of critique of cinema and cinematic principles, you know, much more, I would think like directly or overtly, you know, because it's playing with this idea of like, okay, you're seeing the images, you're hearing the narrator, you're going to believe all this, right? That's, that's your anchor. Mm. It's like, this is it. This is, we have to hold on to this without a reliable narrator. We're fucked. But he he takes so long to introduce that to problematize that that it's so unsettling. You you spend the whole second half then scrambling and throwing out everything from the first like fifty minutes of the movie. You're like, I mean, where am I now? Like, because it isn't just that there's like minor differences; it's an entirely different uh, scenario that we're being presented with in the second half of the film. There are obviously characters yeah. that play roles in both and some who do cross over, particularly his foster uh, uncle, foster father, the uncle doctor, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> um, because we learn very quickly. I mean, the the, the the base, I guess we could start from is uh, Jayon is an orphan. He was abandoned by his mother, who he never met at a hospital when he was very young, or at least that's sort of what he tells us anyway. Is, that, is his weeping face like the first image of the movie? I was trying to remember. Uh, it's if, if it's not the first, the very first image, I think the very first image is just like the hospital. The like corridor, the, yeah. Yeah, but but he then very quickly <laughs> yeah. fills the frame, his, his crying mug as he explains. I was like, let's fucking go. Yeah, like, I'm a bastard, folks. I was abandoned here. Born into this. Yeah, this sucks, you know? And my, my mom left me here. But luckily, I have an uncle doctor. There's a doctor at the hospital who more or less unofficially adopts him. And and he says, you know, uh, almost, you know, I guess all the other children who were abandoned, many who were, who were left there, they all were eventually sent off to orphanages and, you know, foster homes and that sort of thing. But the doctor at the hospital, the kindly loving doctor, took him in. Uh, and this doctor also has... Uh, an actual son, uh, Dr. Baloo. We'll just call him Baloo, I guess, uh, throughout the film. So so that's Ajayan's family. 
uh, is this Uncle Doctor and Baloo. And they are both, you know, themselves in both halves of the film. They, they're they there. But other characters are a lot more fluid in terms of their their presence, their role, uh, and just, you know, what we're supposed to to make of them or think of them. I have a question for you as it relates to the brother. And this could just be that I missed something. Do we... I think at first I didn't realize how much importance would be placed on the figure of the brother. Did did we ever see the brother as a young boy as well? No. Okay, because in my mind there are scenes where Ajayan is young and he's talking to the brother who is old, and then when Ajayan grows up, the brother is still basically the same age. Uh, was I seeing what that correct? Okay, yeah, that's yeah. interesting <laughs> and <Yes>. weird. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, that was uh, somewhat troubling to me. I guess the only way I was sort of understanding it on a certain level was that, well, maybe only about 10 years have passed in his age jump because he goes from basically being, you know, I would say like a, a pre-adolescent boy to being in university, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming he goes from like 10 to 18 yeah. or something well, like Well, just that. went from like 30 to 40. Just looks the same. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. the closest comparison I could think is like Anakin Skywalker from one to two and Natalie Portman looking exactly the same and then dating him, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hell but it yeah. is. I mean, there's like, there are these like crazy time jumps too that I think are part of um, once you go through the entire film, you can kind of look back on and question because there are moments where it it is like a cut and we have no idea how much time has, has passed. And because some of those other characters haven't really aged or changed their appearance, it's, it, it, again, I think just sort of like adds another element to, to question like our, our position in this guy's life, like where, where did he go? What happened in between? Does it matter? Did it not matter? Like, what has he chosen to include? And he never explains it. He's never like, well, this is now 10 years later, right? It's just suddenly he like walks in the room and he's got a mustache, you know, and he's like six feet tall. It's like, oh, okay. And there is even the double uh, casting element where the actress that plays Baloo's wife then in the second half appears as a different character, uh, ostensibly. Yeah, and maybe yeah. even a ghost, you know? Yeah. I do like how open-ended that is. Reminded me in, in DeVita, there's a refrain, you know, it's a, what is what is best, you know, the, the false or the true? And that's a question, you know, that Certainly we're... for the cinema. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's even some interesting time jumps in DeVita as well, without getting a little too far ahead in it, like without kind of the foundational ghost stuff, but... I was really surprised when at one point in the narration of DeVita, they mentioned like, man, these four years would have been really hard if you you hadn't been around. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay, four yeah, years oh. have gone by. <laughs> like, yeah. we were just looking at the walls and some of the branches of the trees yeah. and, and like some uh, some loose pigeons <laughs> that were wandering around. There are like <laughs> no, mar I mean, there are like no markers of time in, in DeVita. And I think that's, you know, very characteristic in the sense that it's like, it's about like sculpting in time in the present. So like he doesn't give a shit about the passing of time. I mean, like with all the freeze frames and all the asynchronous sound, it's already like, when is any of this happening? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like so. a film that covers a large span of time, but feels hyper present. 
which is strange, especially with all of those freeze frames, which I don't know if you read anything about that. That was something I remembered with this film that, you know, there's a lot of Indian cinema that physically didn't have like the best conditions to to sort of like live on in uh like this film has a quote-unquote restoration uh but it looks nuts and it's of like varying degrees of quality just because a lot of these negatives weren't really taken care of there was it's a historically like a terrible thing in in india is just that film preservation wasn't very good and i i'd remembered this film being so beautiful but also having all these weird qualities and it feeling like it was coming apart at the seams but throughout yes there are all of these these freeze frames which i think i don't think that's a restoration thing that's just like how the movie is right and it's very you cool and it, and it feels yeah. extremely like boom stuck in the present stuck in a moment like they hit in, in a real way because i don't even normally like freeze frames in movies it's like an odd thing to do and it's wild that it works so well in this like imagine if malik did a freeze frame it would probably be really weird but i do still feel like this has malik like qualities with crazy freeze frames in it yeah it's the result of two things uh he had no money yeah. Making this film, you know, he had a bolax, a 16 millimeter bolax. He had one zoom lens. He had one tripod. He had four lights and two of them didn't work. <laughs> and that's it, you know. <laughs> and so he was also developing theory on film. You know, he was a guy that wrote a lot and also like reflected a lot on movies. And he talks about, you know, at this point, like from what I understand, reading more about him, this is the beginning of his like fuck the unity of time in cinema sort of mm. like phase and sort of concept where he's just going to be just destroying time for the rest of his career, basically like no longer believes in, uh, you know, Hollywood time or linear yeah. time or like smooth flowing time basically. Um, and looking for a more, yeah, like direct kind of cinema in his own right. way. I think it also invokes, the style of a folk tale or fable or fairy tale um, because, you know, it's, it's almost like reading like a, a, a picture book at times where we just have these kinds of like frozen images in which the narration is meant to kind of like cover a lot of, of what happened, you know, um, that, that we're sort of like, okay, here's what these guys were discussing. And instead of us having a whole scene where we kind of like watch the, <laughs> yeah, the, <like> that. <laughs> yeah, watch the trial of the ghost, you know, or whatever, they'll, they'll kind of like, you know, be able to leap over a, a certain point to, again, I think get to the, the, like the heart of the moments, you know, I guess that that's tying into the way you were kind of describing the feeling of like being very present. It's like, you know, we're, we're only going to the moments of extreme, like, um, you know, uh, feeling or, uh, uh, event, if you could even call it that in a movie mm -hmm. like this, because obviously there are lots of, of moments where we're just sort of like lingering on surfaces. We're lingering on details, body parts, fragments of a world. But again, these are, these are images that are supposed to kind of like, I think invoke, uh, emotion and tone and, a certain sensuality that, you know, doesn't need to be uh, dealt with through dialogue and, and things like that, you know, that many of the images are meant to, to, to carry us to 
you know, four years later or that sort of thing, you know, like we watched the relationship of, of her and the ghost happen almost wordlessly over these four years, Mm -hmm. you know, that they fall in love, that they certainly consummate the marriage finally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so de-emphasized, you know, the, the film in that moment isn't particularly interested in, in how that coupling came about just the result of it. I mean, overall, it's a film that seems as though it has its own rules that it it doesn't conform to any typical definitions of how time works in film, that this thing is its own singular object. And what I think is cool about Monologue and Antaram is that it seems to be playing by the rules to, to purposefully just to break them. Yeah, Because absolutely. that first 50 minutes does feel very classical in the way that the narrative is playing out. Like extremely classical, almost classical Hollywood, which feels abnormal for the for this type of cinema. And then it blows it all up just to say, like, we were breaking the rules the whole time. And you didn't even realize it because yeah. this was baked into the design from the very beginning. So I think that that's pretty a, a neat like link between them, too. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, monologue is is um, <clears throat> almost obsessed with those rules because it has a it has a plan for those yeah. rules, <laughs> and, yeah, and we yeah. might at first not be very well aware of what that plan is. But again, I think that's the joy of this film. If if you introduced the conceit of this guy being full of shit, aka like crazy or nuts or whatever, right from the get go, to me this movie would have been like tedious. But because it it happens. Uh, only after well establishing that it's like not going to happen, does it really like hit the way that it does. The first half of the movie is basically a complete story. It's a, it's a melodrama. It's like a tragic romance playing by the rules of so many other established narratives of, of like unrequited love and that sort of thing. And then the second half of the movie is just kicks off right away as like a, a fucking like a, a horror movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts, you know, it reminded me at first to, to throw back again to uh, one of our, uh, one of the Indian films we've had, but uh, Kanatil Mutamital, the Mani Ratnam film, also has this like orphan origin story, you know, that it does subvert in its own way, but not like this, you know. No. <laughs> and I was thinking about the how funny it is in the twice told tale now that I've, you know, heard the second version, looking back on like the beginning of his story when he's oh, like, yeah. <laughs> You know, really, the problem is I was too smart and too yeah. athletic. Yes. No, absolutely. It fucking rocks. Yeah, it's like, amazing. You know, yeah, everything. Like, his whole first story is he's the best at everything. He's the best at sports. He's the smartest kid in school. He's the funniest guy. He's the he's the best singer. Like, everything he does, he just immediately, effortlessly, like, rocks at it. Yeah, he's so good at holding his breath that it, like, makes another kid cry in fear. Yeah, he thinks he's because he, he held his breath for, like, two minutes underwater, you <laughs> right. know, and the, 
and the, <laughs> the other kid gave up. And and like Baloo even reflects on that in the first story. He's just like, man, if I had if I had an ounce of your natural talent, I'd go so far in life. You know what is what is the problem here? It's just that he's kind of a a slacker. You know that's it. It's it's that he doesn't apply himself. But it's not because he's not good enough. He's fucking great. I mean, there's that crazy scene where he goes to like a carnival. He's recounting this this tale of of this <laughs> carnival and, yeah. and a game that I didn't fully understand. But it seemed like you could bet on carny darts. It was like carny darts, where <laughs> yeah. it seemed like you could bet on the targets you were going to hit, and there were all these really tiny, like color coded targets. And we just see this extended sequence. I mean, it's like a long sequence. Yeah, where he's just nailing every single throw and everyone is like oh my god i can't believe this and he's got like his arms are filled with i'm assuming are like chips like casino chips from from winning this game (laughs) and he could have kept going if it weren't for the fact that the carnival owner of the game is like get out of here i'm gonna kick your ass this is the third time you've done this or whatever just like a real pit boss (laughs) they they had to like throw his ass out because he's he's jobbing the system but but yeah you're right i mean like when you're watching it in real time, when you're watching that first story, you are then like very like, yeah, you're very sympathetic to him. And, and you, you see him get bullied. He's an orphan. Ryan, were you fucking just like so distraught when they threw all his books all over the fucking like, oh my muddy God, road? Yeah. Dude, I thought of you in that moment. I was like... <laughs> What would Ryan do? You know, it made me so sad. <laughs> but I love what he does, which is just like p- pick Throw up a, a rock, rock and fucking head. like <laughs> crack another dude's head open. Because that was like a heavy rock that made that kid's head like start gushing with blood. Yeah. You know, I, I for a second thought he was going to kill the kid. Yeah. I really did. That's <laughs> the first time we see that like, yeah, he isn't this like nice, perfect kid. I mean, he is probably fucking traumatized from like everything that's happened to him, uh, assuming what certain amount of it is true. Right. Um, but yeah. And then he goes to the principal and he's like, I don't feel bad. They fucking threw my books all over. And I was like, hell yeah, dude, I love yeah. you. You know, yeah, he literally says like, I'll do it again. Yeah. 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 But we later learn. Yeah. Maybe it's also, yeah. Uh, a pattern of disturbing behavior. Right. It, it's it's certainly the first like crack in the veneer that he's just like this like this nice tragic guy that that life has like heaped on all of this mm-hmm. you know the the sort of, the, this like loneliness and this sadness because that's also a big part of of the first story when you kind of read between the lines is uh he's very isolated from people. He's he's very uh, lonely, somewhat antisocial. Now, again, yeah. in the first story, he explains that antisocial behavior as everyone's just jealous of me. You know, <laughs> like everyone's jealous of how good I am at all this stuff, at singing, at, at darts, at holding my breath, that it's hard to make friends when you are so good. Even the bullies, right? It's the idea that he's the smartest kid in class and and people don't like that about him. And eventually, you know, this leads to the big turmoil with his foster brother, Baloo, and his wife, Suma. Uh, Baloo gets a sort of arranged marriage to this woman, Suma, and almost immediately she's just making gaga eyes at, 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 you know, Ajay on the whole time. And he feels that sexual tension. And, and it's like, 
he's like, I didn't do anything, but she just, you know, she doesn't like blue and she just wants me probably because of my singing or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, that's then this, this sort of like, okay, he's like, I gotta go, you know, I can't be in this environment because I don't want to do this to my brother. I, I don't want to tear apart our lives. I'm that loyal. ഞാനൊന്നും മറച്ചു വയ്ക്കാൻ ആഗ്രഹിക്കുന്നില്ല അല്ലെങ്കിൽ മറച്ചു വെച്ചിട്ട് എന്താണ് പ്രയോജനം എങ്ങനെയാണത് പറയേണ്ടത് എന്നെനിക്കറിഞ്ഞുകൂടാ എനിക്ക് ആ നോട്ടം മറക്കാൻ കഴിയുന്നില്ല എനിക്ക് ആ കണ്ണുകൾ മറക്കാൻ കഴിയുന്നില്ല എത്രമേൽ ശ്രമിച്ചിട്ടും ആ രൂപം എന്റെ മനസ്സിൽ നിന്നും മായുന്നില്ല Right. And we're talking about this film having a radical subjectivity that's presented in a classical form for the first hour. Because, yes, I'm watching this. I see this kid, his books get trashed. And then he strikes back out with this radical act. And we're like, yeah, fucking get him. And then later he's writing this letter to his brother trying to do this noble gesture of like, oh, I feel so guilty. I love I your, wife. your wife. <laughs> I'm not going to fuck your wife. She's so smoking hot, but I'm not going to do it because I love you. And I'm torn to shreds on the inside because I feel this way. And then you start playing back the tapes and you think about how like, Everything feels so clear cut because of the way it's presented in this classical style. And then so once it's like shifted and once everything breaks and we move into the second half and we get a different perspective on it, that's when everything in the beginning starts like flooding back very quietly into our memories and feels scarier. Like that doesn't feel noble. This crazy letter that he's writing to his brother, he kind of feels like a psychopath. Him throwing that rock at the kid does feel totally out of proportion. Like everything starts being very strange. And then it makes me think about him interrupting the class when he shows up late and he says, you know, perfectly off the cuff, like the definition of what this film even is. And it's in its interpretation of history about history is like recovering a sunken ship. And so, of course, we're recovering the sunken ship of the first hour of this movie being like, you know, I, I saw it from this angle, but now I turn and I realize that there was mutiny on this ship. Like something was off like this. This wasn't healthy. What the hell is even going on here? Yeah. The vertical thing is great. I keep you said that at the top and I keep thinking about that. Like this is it's like vertigo. You just play it back and you're like. Wait, what the fuck? What's going yeah. on here? And there's yeah. even because he almost seems even, of course, more self-aware in the second version, in a sense that he's sort of like, well, here's a lot that, like, I guess I didn't tell you. Here's about. the real story. Yeah, in a in a way. But there there was a really sad moment, like you you mentioned it, Ryan. Like, was Baloo ever younger? Now think about it from this this like moment. He first we see him as a child. This is like the very beginning of the the second part and he's just spinning around in like the yeah. living room and then he just like collapses. And he has a voiceover where he's like, I grew up in isolation. Childhood still lives with me. And we see a picture of Baloo on the wall and he goes, "Did Baloo have a childhood?" To my mind, he did not. Always oh, wow. mature from the earliest memories. Um but Then he goes on to explain that his mother died when Baloo was very young and that he, like him, was effectively raised by these 
three servants who the three wise like, men yeah yeah they have nothing to do with the first half no, of the movie they don't appear at all and then all of a sudden we're like oh yeah dr uncle was like never around he's a fucking busy guy blue was off in like medical school and ajayan is just like I was raised by these crazy yeah. guys. Yeah. I was raised by these crazy guys. Yeah. You know? Let's and, and I should explain <laughs> them a little bit because we have we have uh, a, a Jayon introduces us to a cook who eats all the food before it's served, uh, a mechanic who spends his entire day working on a car that doesn't run, and a, a pharmacist uh, referred to as a compounder in the translation. It took me a minute to realize, oh, he's compounding drugs, you know, from formulas or whatever. So he's like a pharmacist who refuses to, to actually yeah, give drugs to anybody. Yeah. So these guys are just the most awful men uh, who, who effectively in the second half Yes, like raise him or or whatever is going on. I completely missed that line about the brother not having a childhood. That might yeah. have been one of those classic. Like, I found it so striking. I was writing notes and, you know, like, because that to me, that answers the question that I posed at the beginning. Be like, hold on. Was that guy ever young? Because, <laughs> it, yeah, it's like calling attention to it. Yeah. Either in his subjectivity, he wasn't young or like he was never young. You know, right. like it has right. multiple. But again, it, it goes back to that moment you described in class where he's answering the question to the teacher. And, and I think it's actually like how how is how is literature like a I think he asks the question about, you know, how is literature like raising a, a, a sunken ship from the ocean or something like that? Um, oh, he says literature. Interesting. I, I think in the translation I saw, he he said literature, or his he actually says, "How is historical literature?" It's oh, both. Okay. How Got is it. historical literature? Yeah, historical fiction. Yeah, constructing his, historical fiction. That's what the sub mm, said. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. And and the ocean in uh, Jayan's uh, explanation, the metaphor is memory, and so you know when we then again like think about the 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 extreme subjectivity of his own recollections and his memories. Yes, of course, that's why Baloo always appears as this fully formed figure. Right. Because he didn't have interactions with him any other way. He can't conjure up images of him as a child. Everyone appears in the film only as he's ever known them or encountered them. Uh, so, so that certainly makes only, you know, sense once you do get to like where he actually is by the end of the film. And again, there's like moments with Baloo that he has in both sections where the scene is basically identical. There's like this interaction he has with Baloo where they're like in a room together and Baloo is studying for school and in, in like the first half, as he's remembering it, he is a Jayon, that is, a child sitting at the opposite desk. Later in the film, it's the identical setup, the identical lighting, and the identical like crickets chirping on the soundtrack that are very prominent. The soundscape in both of these movies is is crazy, by the way. Like both of these movies have like insane soundscapes. Um but now Ajayan is an adult when he's recalling an interaction with Baloo at the desk where they're talking about studying. Because, like again, in the first half, Baloo's like, 
oh, I have to study so hard and everything comes so easy to you. And then in the second half, Baloo is like, dude, hit the fucking books or I'm going to kick the shit out of you right. or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it becomes extremely muddy by the end. I mean, really there's almost like three stories really in, in the film. If you want to, if you want to look at it that way, there's, there's sort of like two recollections and then there's maybe the actual the film itself, right? The actual <laughs> yeah. present where he's sitting there over the letter that he ended the first half on and we come back to the letter at the ending him at the desk like writing this this you know there's another repetition too right because don't we see in the end of the first half all the people sort of crowding around the windows of his dorm and then like halfway through the second half we have the scene where like uncle doctor shows up and finds him basically like od not od but like weed smoking weed yeah, yeah. He's, he's just like passed out fucking living like a slob you know um yeah yeah, because the 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 angles on the door are identical, where there's this sort of like little window above the door and we only get like the top of people's heads. And in the first half, yeah, it's like all these guys start kind of crowding around his classmates, it's assumed. In the second half, it's Uncle Doctor. Uh, I think Baloo also comes to the door at a certain point. But, but again, it's like, this is why I was thinking of Robe Grier, because Robe Grier, in his literature especially, like that, that idea of pure description, like Robe Grier would painstakingly describe that particular like angle of I'm on the bed, yeah. I'm looking at the door, I can only see the tops of people's heads. And, and, and that would be very important to establish repetition and problematizing that repetition. Like, is this the same time, but different space or same space, different time or same time, same space, but <laughs> everything's fucked up. <laughs> right, know? right. To that end, uh, DeVita also begins and like circles back to the imagery that it opens with uh, the candle Yeah, uh, in the sort of, I don't even know, the wall. I don't know what the fuck's going on in so many of those spaces. But yeah, circular imagery abounds. Yeah, well, it's interesting how there's this impulse in both films to look back while we're in our present. And I think about how, like, what what is the instinct in Anantaram, right? To, to look back that first hour of the film and remember the past a certain way. It reminds me of a line in Davida where she says the, the comfort and security of my mother's womb is far different than my husband's estate. <laughs> and and then as it like relates to that, like looking back, trying to find that comfort and security and having her husband now arrive in a different form <laughs> as a ghost and accepting that because it provides that comfort and security. It's like a new version of, of a reality I want. Uh, because it conforms with where I find my peace and how I remember finding my peace. Maybe it's a bit of a reach, but like I, I, that line really stuck out to me when she compares her husband's estate, which is initially presented as this really troubling space, being like, yeah, this is nothing like my mother's womb. And then it's like, does this ghost turn it into a space of comfort like her mother's womb? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think that's why the film is like very radical for its time and for any time, because it's basically saying like, Arranged marriage is slavery, and yeah. having sex with a ghost is better 
than that, you know, <laughs> yeah, like basically. Yeah, yeah. And the ghost even says, like, these people are greedy merchants. Like, fuck them. What do you owe them? They basically bought you. Yeah. She says in her voiceover, right, to parents, a daughter is like a root that must be uprooted, right? And she's been uprooted and just sold to this guy. Uh, and, you know, we, we get a glimpse into their marriage, which lasts five minutes at the beginning. And she's like, oh, look, there's some fruit on that tree. I would love to go pick some. And he's like, fucking peasants do that. Shut up. Yeah. And you're just like, great. Great marriage, you know, right, or whatever. Yeah. Like that's the glimpse in it, and <laughs> I think a great start. And I think Manny Call is like attacking that, you know, mm-hmm. this idea of like women's rights and women's emotions, right? Because that's what I also got from the, his previous film. It's all about this woman's emotions and people being like, "You're not allowed to feel that," and she's like, "But I do, motherfucker," mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. and that's a radical act, you know. So I mean, that's what. That's what Bollywood cinema sometimes is, though, too, right? Like, that's yeah. why this idea of it being parallel is so interesting because right. it's, it's so emotion forward in Bollywood and being like, I, I, I need to be allowed to feel this way. It's my right to feel this way. So many of them are, like, actually about that. Yeah. Yeah. I read a crazy thing, dude, about how Manny Call personally made a 35 blow-up that he filmed like of the 16 like he pers- like he took 15 days and made like his own blow up but it does sound like yeah he he was on some crazy like painter shit i yeah. mean that's like what you could say too is like reading interviews with him he's basically like i i reject theater i don't believe in i don't believe in cinema as performance uh, I believe in something else, you know, and it's closer to painting yeah. in a sense. And he was like a scientific kind of like mind in a lot of ways. So he did like crazy, whatever like stocks he chose and like lights he had, like he had a crazy vision, you know, right. like yeah. he was on it for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, the film, like in the condition we have it now, almost looks like an AI upscale and at certain moments and then other moments yeah. it doesn't. Like it, it has this weird inconsistency to it uh yeah. that makes you feel like you're lost in a dream or something it really just yeah it looks like again i i just was like this looks like color of pomegranates and like no other movie you know yeah. like in my yeah. mind just because i'm a noob but like no it no movie is like is so cut creamy. and moves like it yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well and i mean they're they're both uh, uh like they're both mythopoetic classics i mean for me now, this is 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 in that same pantheon of, you know, the, the, again, it 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 defies everything that the more I would say again, defining it as like a parallel cinema that it defies everything that the sort of like mainstream cinemas of 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 Bollywood and certainly fucking Hollywood for that matter have have tried so hard to codify and establish is like, Hey, if a movie doesn't do this and if it doesn't look like this, and if it doesn't sound like this, uh, it ain't a movie worth seeing. And, and Parajanov and, uh, you know, certainly this film, they, they, they reject that outright. They reject it from the get go again, differentiating these two films you know monologue is is very clearly trying to 
you know, the trick that it's trying to pull is by, is by starting from those places. Uh, but, but, uh, Davida, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even in the same country as, as so many other forms of, of already kind of like established narrative modes. And, and again, just the, the, the very like language, the grammar of, of cinema. Dude, there's just a whole scene that's like structured around her being on a swing. And yeah. it's like the greatest sequence of all time. And I can't even just like describe what happened. I was just like vibing with it so hard. Um, both of these films actually interact with uh, the landscapes and the nature, I think, really well. I mean, it's it's India after all. Uh, and just like one con- one thing, not just in these films, but I love like seeing trees blowing outside of windows and both of these films like have a lot of that and like seeing nature from interiors you know which is just like for us it's like even a film that shoots on location in america is like shooting all their interiors on sets you know and it's just all bullshit so to see like you know i mean manny call gives us many many trees blowing in the wind but to see them blowing in the wind like just through the fucking window while like she's lying with the ghost or whatever you're just like god this is fucking cinema dude yeah because he does something pretty interesting by de-emphasizing all the architecture so that we notice everything else more even if he is lingering on stone and dirt and the walls as it relates to the sky I kept thinking about how there were so many ornate carvings in so many of the arches and in the doorways that like he is never lingering on. His camera is never, you know, essentially massaging any of those walls because they're just fascinating to look at. But he is he, he's always looking elsewhere. And even something like that, when we're inside, our eye is drawn to the tree blowing outside because of the way he's he's got it framed. And you could have done a whole architecture approach to this but he's he's not interested in that the 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 natural world feels so much more prevalent outside of the those boundaries and those walls well and they both like um they they both are are very clear in delineating this idea of interior and exterior or internal words worlds and external worlds in their framing, but also the fact that a lot of those windows where we're glimpsing the external or the exterior world, there's, there's bars often on a lot of the windows. Uh, Especially for our monologue guy. Dude. Oh, he yeah. is like in prison from the second half so much. A- absolutely. But, but even, you know, I mean, obviously it's not nearly as as um you know it, we're not getting beat over the head with it the way we are in monologue but it's there in davida that that she is a prisoner as well and the ghost is a prisoner and and i mean as the ghost you know jumping ahead a little bit uh is is finally like bagged bagged you know <laughs> ghost busted uh, great scene by the way with the shepherd it was like reminding me of romulus and remus you know yeah. it's ghost busted yeah uh, he's like screaming, like, don't, don't lock me up. Like I want to be free. I deserve to be free. So, so yeah, I mean, again, this, this idea that you brought up earlier about like, you know, uh, a woman, uh, and, and her like emotional state and being sort of like trapped in this very patriarchal kind of like environment and world. Yeah. We have, we have characters who are claiming that they are, 
being held against their will. Now, obviously, in Davida, we see the, the systems of power in place that, that are there to, to do that. But in monologue, I mean, he is uh, a prisoner of his own mind, ultimately, we will yeah. see. So what was the name of uh, the, <laughs> the, the Roger Moore movie I brought <laughs> For our our episode about the man um, who haunted himself, yeah, the man who haunted himself. (laughs) My mind was like the man who knew himself. Like I couldn't remember what the hell that was called. Um, I love how in Duvida it really delivers on so much of what that movie also delivers on where Roger Moore learns that there's like another dude who looks like him. That's like going about business and getting shit done. Cause there's a great scene in Duvida when the merchant's son who is away for five years you know, has a guy come up to him and be like, oh, I know you're a fraud. Like, you've been, I'm your neighbor. You've been home this whole time. I knew you're just a fraudulent <laughs> yeah. businessman. And he's like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? You know? like, <laughs> And then, like, it reaches, like, a great climax because I remember us talking about throughout the Roger Moore film of wanting to see the two Roger Moores, like, face-to-face and interacting with each other and how everyone would respond. And I love how low-key that hits in DeVita when the the merchants uh the merchant i guess i keep calling him the merchant's son then the merchant himself the father is standing there between the two versions of his son one with like a red turban and the other with an orange turban and he just quietly is like looking back and forth at the two of them like five times <laughs> in between doorways and like can't make heads or tail of it सच्ची बात का फैसला होना चाहिए अपराधी को दंड मिले दो पतियों का रिवाज चल निकला तो कैसे पार पड़ेगी अमीरों के लिए तो कुछ नहीं गरीबों का जीना हराम हो जाएगा वेरी वेरी नाइस या एंड द फैक्ट दैट ही लाइक इज नॉट रिएक्टिंग द वे आई थिंक यू नो most people in the real world re- world would react to that. I mean, again, that that to me like placed this in this kind of like folktale fairy tale space because he's so calm in that he's like, yeah, you're not my son. Okay, we got a double. We got to get this sorted out. You know, like there's only one way to do this. We need a trial. You know, we got to take <laughs> a series of tests, and uh, and everyone is pretty cool in in handling those tests. I love the ghost tests. Uh, amazing connection that I just remembered is, do you remember when Ajayan is passed out in his dorm and, and there's like that shot of all the matches on the floor? Did you see what book was under his bed? It was a Joseph Campbell book. Oh, yes. I was right. losing it, dude. It was like Occidental Mythology by Joseph Campbell. And I was Whoa. like, we are, we are in like fucking mytho, mytho land this week. Andy. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's, again, why I feel like the director, he's so clearly like a- a- attacking these kinds of like established, well-established and well-held views about narrative character and you know, all that shit, narration, that sort of thing. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. I mean, and again, I think it's also just a, a, a very sharp portrait 
of madness, of mm-hmm. paranoia, yeah. of of a character like losing his mind in in the way that it's it's delivered to us. You know, again, it's it's certain things like with schizophrenics that you'll hear. You know, certain things that are are you know certain behaviors that that'll come out, and and the idea of sort of like repetition and patterns, and also this idea of of trying to sort of like uh, uh, convince others of what you are experiencing and seeing, and and the feeling of of sort of like uh, of terror when you're trying to 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 make yourself heard and and no one's seeing things the way that that you're seeing it i mean certainly that's the case with the merchant you know in devito when he's flipping out being like how come no one yeah. <laughs> like what? i mean you know what do you mean <laughs> yeah, yeah like the heck you mean like roger moore dad, you know <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> but yeah you know like in monologue it becomes it becomes very uh it, it becomes heartbreaking once we really do get that full picture uh near the end and again this idea of doubles i mean uh, not just in these two stories, but the fact that the second story revolves around the idea of a potential double where he's seeing Suma from the first story, but now she's under the name uh, uh, Nalini. She's a woman, Nalini, who's kind of like just going about town, I think, on a bus. Yeah. And he sees he's her. just st- really stalking her at a bus stop. And at a certain point, I just wrote like, Oh no, this is turning into an evil Eric Romare film where like <laughs> it just could be this like innocuous, repetitious thing, like, oh, I'm so in love with this woman at the bus stop, but I'll never talk to her. Yeah. And then in this, he's like investigating. Yeah. <laughs> like he's going and about imagining, town. you know. But like, again, there's like these like hints that kind of come up that once you get to the end, it, it all makes sense. Prior to that whole sequence. Uh, we, we have him again as like a child and he's talking to Baloo and he says, uh, you know, there's a woman, uh, a Vakshi in the translation, a seductive spirit who I've been seeing going around the house at night. You know, this idea of like a woman, her presence, and she's just haunting me. She's trying to seduce people, right? That sort of thing. And then here is Nalini, the seductive spirit haunting me. I'm just trying to go about my day and be a shitty student or whatever, but this woman keeps coming by (laughs) and making goo-goo eyes at me. What's her problem? And then she has a father suddenly show up and say, cut it out. But then maybe Claims that father didn't even exist yeah. or whatever, you know? I love the origin of the the whole, like, seductive spirit thing. Because we actually do get a, get a little insight, which is basically the three servant bros who at one point teach him how to drink whiskey to drown his sorrows, which is a cool scene. But they're clearly just getting a prostitute. And they so he sees the prostitute, like, leaving their house and is like, oh, it's a spirit. Yeah. And, like, he's all fucked up because right. these guys are like, oh, yeah, kid, seductive spirit for sure yeah Yeah. but again the the language of the cinema is being presented to us as this like this like ghost moment this like horror moment and those guys are are at times they're scary extremely scary you know very scary it's interesting how that film does sort of build to this like breaking point of both the emotions and the form itself because there's a moment in duvida i really like where when they are like essentially doing the trial of the two merchant sons, they say, you know, we cannot permit 
two husbands. Yeah. Uh, like we simply cannot. <laughs> and when I was watching an Antaram and it, as it builds and we start reaching towards this climax, I kept thinking the same thing. Like we cannot permit two Ajayans. Like this is all going to come <laughs> crumbling down. And then it does. <laughs> and we realize it's like bipolar madness, you know? Um, but I love that we cannot permit two of them. Like yeah. this all needs to get resolved. It's bad for business. You know? <laughs> like, no one will trust any of the merchants. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about how just like the sort of the final notes in Duvida, because um, some of the last things she says, so after the ghost is ghost busted and she starts like living with her husband again, she says something kind of enigmatic where she mentions, you know, I crave love and affection above all riches, but life's mysteries cannot be solved by simple answers. And then one of the last things we hear about the film is one of the narrators saying she never protested or complained thenceforth yeah and she was the most dutiful wife ever right say. and so like the, the i those two cradling her ghost baby by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah cradling her ghost baby right and it's uh, i was curious what you both took away from from that ending because i think there's something both extremely sad yeah it's extremely yeah. sad and yet she is also cradling the ghost baby and does have this one thing, this comfort and riches that in these life's mysteries that she can't really put to words, but she does carry in her arms. It's like I'll a little bit way. of both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because think about the other, the other option, right? She, she never had this love with the ghost, which I right. view as a positive thing mm -hmm. uh, in the context of everything that's going on. So like, yeah, that she gets to keep a little piece of it is better than the alternative that it never happened, that she was just alone and sad for five years. And then this ineffectual merchant came back like, right. Yeah, what's up? You know, like, can we fuck now or whatever? Like, I know. brought those grapes you wanted or whatever, yeah. you know, yeah, your the, peasant the, grapes, the, the peasant fruit. But it's haunting, yeah. man. It is so haunting. Yeah. Like at but, the but, end. But you're right, though. The, the voiceover as it's being delivered, I think, is is meant to be ironic in that right. sense. You know, and this too, is yeah. why it's a sort of like critique of uh, of a folktale or a fairy tale, because you can see how in the one, you know, reading of it. You know, if we were reading this tale and and it being an old tale, this would be that it, it's a happy ending. This ghost was sent packing, you know, this imposter who who came in and and cucked me, you know, in front of all the other merchants or whatever. But the way it's being presented to us cinematically uh, stands in opposition to the, like those words and those ideas of and she was basically, yeah, because the, the voiceover is being read like she was then the best wife ever. She did everything her parents asked. She did everything her in-laws asked. You know, she covered herself up when she was asked to. She was awesome. She was great. But the images we're seeing of her is that she's now like completely uh, devastated spiritually, emotionally and psychologically by this event that sure she's now just said okay fine i'm i'm trapped here and i'm just gonna go through all the motions but but yeah that's a, to me the, the sort of like ironic critique of of that 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 conclusion to the story i mean it's the same thing in monologue like that's a tragic ending as well that's a devastating ending when we when we really do see what's going on and we really do understand now the, the, the relationship between Baloo and Ajayan. Yeah, just trying to get him to take his meds. You know? yeah, yeah, dude. And 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 again, like 
poor fucking Suma. Again, think about this woman who, you know, in the first story, she's like a, a, a seductress. In the second story, she's like this kind of like duplicitous double spirit thing, you know? And the male mind. Yeah, right. yeah. And then, and then, I mean, that shot of of Ajayan like storming over to Baloo's room, banging on the door, and him opening it for us to see Suma, his wife, standing there terrified. And the shot of Ajayan's eyes as he's like looking into this room and being like, she's got to go. She's fucking evil. <laughs> like, I'll get rid of her if you don't. And Baloo just lovingly trying to be like, dude, just go, go take your pills, man. <laughs> like, she's yeah. staying. Like, she's not going anywhere. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's terrifying. It's really cool how they do the same sort of depth staging with her in both acts, but it means different things. Right. So in the first it's like, Oh, she's in the distance looking at him, yeah. you know? And then in the second act, it's like, she's afraid of, she's terrified. She's, terrified yeah. she's of hiding him in the behind Baloo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She has a great line that really connects, I think rather well to the, the, the final line in Davida when she, I, I think she's waiting for the bus and she says to him, there, there's more truth in thoughts than in words. And I think that that's a great way of describing that final line of Duvida about how she never pr protested or complained thenceforth. Because look at how powerless those words are to what she's probably thinking when we have that lingering close up on her. Much more power in, in thoughts than in words in, in that situation. Yeah. Uh, very much so. Wow. Because uh, Jayon is absolutely sort of trapped, uh, again, like imprisoned by his racing thoughts, his repetitive thoughts, his circular thinking, his, his very problem, problematic thinking. I mean, yeah. again, we, we, we go back then and we look at so many of the interactions and we have to read between the lines, you know, uh, of, of not just what was said, but now like, the thoughts behind those words uh, that we weren't fully aware of. And then at the end, he concludes that he, he probably missed a few details, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like a, a brief flashback of him as a child by the water. Well, and it's, it's, an, it's an important <laughs> one because those steps into the river, they, they, we see them multiple times. Yes. And each time it's a little bit different, you know? In the first story, uh, it's this idea that he's surrounded by other kids. They're all playing and, and he's sort of like, you know, uh, leading these games that they're playing in the river. And in the second story, he's there with Baloo and, you know, he's like afraid to go in the water or something like that. But then at that ending, when we sort of end with him again as a child on those steps, he's going up and down the steps and counting the steps. And he'll count the steps and get close to the water, then turn around, go back up and count again. But this time, slightly differently. There's like a different pattern to his counting each time he's going like up and down those steps. Again, I think playing or you know revealing this sort of like schizophrenic repetitive kind of sing-song pattern that's often been like uh, uh indicative of like schizophrenic like brain brain patterns and that right sort of thing. right wow hell yeah 
Well, gee, uh, when you think about <laughs> parallel cinema, <laughs> sure. Indian new wave cinema, whatever, whenever. Yeah, you have a lot more exposure to it than I do. What sure, do you like? but I mean, even even my watch list is longer than what I've watched, right? You know, I, I did watch like a good majority of the Satyajit Ray films because I love all of those. And I've seen Ritwick Talk, like I love the River Titus, uh, oh, yeah. all that stuff. The the two I would quickly recommend um, kind of scratch like two different types of itches, one of which is the film Piazza from 1957. Did you watch that one, Marsh? The yeah. Guru Dutt film? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that one's cool because that has song sequences, like it has full-blown music numbers, but it's, yeah, it's grim. It's also a film about someone being like, let me feel what I want to feel. Let me <laughs> let me have my emotions on my own terms. A really, really sad uh, and beautiful film. I, I think because it's like about a poet, right? And he's, yeah. All, all the Guru Dutt films were really striking because uh, they restored those not too long ago and those really, really struck a chord with me. And then the other f- fun one I would recommend it's kind of nice because I'm recommending a film from a filmmaker we've done on the gauntlet on an episode I wasn't on, <laughs> which wow. is uh, Salam Bombay, the film by Mira Nair. Uh You guys did um, Mississippi, Mississippi Masala. Masala yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, I love Salam Bombay. That's a really cool movie. It, it really hit hard after because like it it's filmed basically in downtown Mumbai. And it was like the first thing I watched after we went on that trip over there but it's you know it, it, i wonder if i'm you know remembering in a, in a nicer light than it, it could be one of those films that perhaps falls in the traps of like oh you know oh, it's all poverty uh like and it's like international sensation type of film because it's like really palatable but i remember thinking it was really good uh, i'm pretty sure it just follows like a street kid um as he's like trying to make some money in the slums you know but it's really dynamic it's cool it's definitely like independent cinema that that is outside of the the system itself. So yeah, those those are the two I'd recommend. You know, one of the classics, Guru Dutt, and then uh, the Mirror and Air films from like the late '80s. Really, really cool film capturing Bombay at that time. So yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, one one more thing that I wanted to mention to you guys: Did you read that Devita was remade in 2005? <laughs> is it also called Devita? <laughs> it is called Paheli, and it stars Shah Rukh Khan. Oh. Believe it or not. So wow. I'm going to be checking that out for it's sure. It's on Netflix, it says. Yeah. <laughs> and it's 141 minutes. Of course it is. <laughs> yeah. DeVito was like a, a, a quick, brisk 80. <laughs> right. Oh, just, uh, it yeah. flies by. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, thank you both. Uh, where Where is the parallel roads taking us next week, Marsh? It's your topic. Yes. Well, you know, it's been really cold here in Chicago, really feeling the winter. And uh, in the past couple years, uh, I've taught every winter uh, a heist films course, and I'm not currently teaching it. And I'm feeling the lack of cinematic robbery in my life. Now, I'm not going to request that you bring me a a heist film per se or even like a, you know, a conventional thing. Just bring me any movie that has to do with robbery or stealing. Mm. I want to I want to rob, you know, a little bit of larceny, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, Bring me something like that. Gladly. I love nabbing stuff from 
Target and Walmart, you know, a little little snack or something. That's just, it feels great. This is statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah, should I not admit that on the phone? <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, you do, you do whatever you want. You're fine. You're fine. As always, you can follow us on social media. <laughs> on, on Twitter, X, whatever it's called. Uh, old habits die hard. Uh, at Gauntlet Movies. Uh, you can listen to us, of course, on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and other podcast retailers. And you can send us emails to Marsh's Mailbag. You should, you know, just come to say hi at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I don't know.